Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Botho. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, and being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. In the traditional texts, the Buddha often used family relationships to describe the development of the qualities of the heart. In one of his teachings, He described the open-hearted essence of metta, actually the essence of all of the Brahma-viharas, the divine abidings, through a mother's relationship to her four sons. Each son, because of his particular temperament and his particular relationship to life, is the recipient of one of the energies of the divine abidings of the Brahma-viharas. The mother's relationship with each of her son is characterized by loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, or equanimity. I was really happy when I read this. I had only three sons, or I have only three sons, but they were... um, I think, as I may have already mentioned, they were my strongest teachers. They haven't missed teaching me any one of the divine abidings over and over again. It's been, uh, actually, tomorrow's the birthday of the two older ones, the twins. So it's been 30, almost 34 years of quite powerful teaching from them. And now um, I have some new teachers. There's grandchildren, so I'm getting the lessons all over again. (laughs) What good fortune, good karma. (laughs) When I was thinking about appreciative joy, I found that um, a fairly recent experience with my uh, middle grandchild was the purest example, the purest experience of appreciative joy that came up for me. I had the honor of being with him when he began to walk the first day we were alone together. He'd been trying, but he walked all the way across the room and was ecstatic (laughs) 
just, he was so happy, he almost lost his balance, you know, (laughs) his equanimity. (laughs) And I was overjoyed. It was just, not overjoyed, but just right joyed. (laughs) It was an absolutely delightful um, experience to be so filled with his joy in his success. And the purity of that really struck me um, when I was thinking about appreciative joy. He wasn't doing it for me, that was clear. He wasn't even doing it for him. He was just simply doing it because that's the way of things. It was time to walk. He was purely enjoying his own success from a non-selfish place. And I really got the taste of it through him. Often our appreciative joy or sympathetic joy is tinged with a jealousy or an envy or a judgment. But this was one of those pure moments. I also remembered um, another experience this afternoon that was quite a different and quite a surprise in terms of appreciative joy. A number of years ago, I was in India. Actually, this was in Nepal with my son. And we were in a town called Pokhara, getting ready to go up into the mountains. We were sitting in a restaurant outside uh, one lunchtime. <clears throat> there was very loud music playing. It happened to be a Madonna. Uh, it's a material world blasting in the midst of this place. And in front of us, um, on this uh, sand uh, road, came a man pushing a cart. He didn't have any legs, and he was on a small cart, and he was using his hands to um, move the cart. That's how he got from one place to another. And he was stopped pretty much right in front of where we were sitting on on this path, this sand road. And a cow, young calf, coming in the other direction, they stopped in facing each other. The man was um, not clean. He was, he was quite dirty and uh, had fairly raggedy clothes on. He had a little hat on, a little wool cap on. And the cow and he seemed to know each other. The cow started licking him. Licked he took off his T-shirt. The cow licked his whole body, his chest, his back, his arms. He turned his body around to get licked. He li- lifted his face up to the cow, took his hat off, his face, his head, his back, his arms, chest, all licked by the cow. And he was obviously enjoying it immensely. Um, it was a bath. It was probably a good salty taste for the cow. And when the cow finished licking him all over, he threw his arms around the cow and just hugged him and hung on to him for a long time. And the cow stood there and seemed to be enjoying that. Um, And my son and I looked at each other and we both had tears in our eyes. 
it was um, joy in seeing this relationship and both of them getting what they needed. And it was so unusual. And we were so surprised. And we were just... And listening, the atmosphere was interesting with the music in the background. (laughs) It just pointed it up even that much more clearly. It was a moment of amazing appreciative joy for both of us, much to our surprise. In this process of opening the process of the expansion of the capacity of our heart. It's really important to understand and respect ourself that it's a a process. It's a slow unfolding, gradually growing capacity. And it's important to know this and to remember this in our sometimes hurry to get what we want in our practice. It's important to know and remember that it's a process and a gradual unfolding, a gradual growing. As I mentioned, I think, a few nights ago, to not... uh, as we do become to know this and remember this more clearly, we less um, imitate some ideal that we have, some image that we have, and be genuine in our expression and in our feeling, whatever it is. So it's really important to know and honor our limits. And as we practice, are the limits, our limitations, or what we think of as our limitations, keep moving out. We have more space, more capacity. About 34 years ago, um, <clears throat> when I was pregnant with the two sons, uh, whose birthday it is tomorrow, I listened um, during um, a lot of my pregnancy, actually, I listened to a lot of classical music. One reason is because I liked it. The other reason is because I'd heard that um, babies in the womb can hear, and uh, I wanted to give them a a good start with good music. (laughs) So I figured I'd enjoy it and they they could hear it too. And um, in my naivete, I thought, um, they'll they'll like classical music, you know? (laughs) Um, But the fact of the matter was, is still, in fact, that they never liked classical music. (laughs) Um, And as adolescents, in fact, they liked um, acid rock and uh, hard rock 
which wasn't my favorite kind of music at all. But it was really good equanimity practice. Equanimity, the even-mindedness, the balance, that kind of spacious stillness of the heart, of the mind, calm. One of the phrases that was offered this morning, things are as they are, seeing things as they are, being with things as they are. And then another phrase that was offered is that all beings are heirs to their, or owners of their own karma happiness, their happiness or our happiness or suffering depends upon our actions, not upon our wishes for ourselves. And even though I really wished for my sons to like classical music, it just wasn't uh, in the way of things for them or for me. And so um, we had to work it out. One of theirs, one of mine. <laughs> and it was, it was really um, a great lesson. I mean, it's a small thing, but we live together, so uh, our humanness uh, was definitely bound up with each other and being human together, as Desmond Tutu spoke about. The possibility of even having appreciative joy, not in the music, but in their enjoyment, in their pleasure. It was not an easy one, but occasionally I could appreciate their appreciation or their joy, their pleasure. Equanimity gives love, unconditional love, a kind of stability, firmness, a loyalty. And it it offers the great virtue of patience to unconditional love. which was very helpful to me (laughs) in those days with teenagers. (laughs) Equanimity also furnishes compassion with a very strong and 
kind of even courage, a kind of fearlessness, which then enables us to engage, face and engage in what sometimes in our life is enormous difficulty, despair, pain, suffering. A friend of mine, her daughter was in an automobile accident a couple of years ago. And she was unconscious for um, a number of months afterwards. And she needed constant care during that time. And my friend, her mother, stayed with her pretty much the whole time in the hospital um, while she was unconscious. And she gently worked with her body during that time, massaging her a lot, talked to her a lot, practiced with her, sat with her a lot. My friend practices very fully in her life. And she wrote me a letter during that time, and I'd like to share just a little bit of what she wrote. This time was uh, a a tremendous uh, time of growth for both of them, both of my my friend and her daughter. This is what my friend wrote to me. I feel very sensitized and and a bit weary, sensitized and opened more to the suffering of humanity, weary of the display created by deluded minds turning to look round quickly to try to spot my delusions and finding them as well, and dealing with the sadness one feels when someone, one of your babies, has been really hurt and is struggling. It's quite complex. So being with her struggle has just made all the struggle of all those I see a bit more real to me. This experience will be, is, transformation for her. And being with her in it has changed my perceptions. I really had to integrate practice and life till there's no life, no practice dichotomy. Being an experiential learner at heart, my heart has been opened wider by needing to be open to it all. And all the while, meeting obstacles with an open heart, clear mind, and not shutting down to protect. Wow, don't always accomplish this, but know it's the best response to the situation. It's almost underlined a whole bunch of times, almost automatic. Equanimity, and I think this is a wonderful example, gives 
a very devotional patience or patient devotion to our work, our compassionate work. And it also helps to balance the very strong emotions that may come up in very difficult, painful situations. So it balances the love and it balances the compassion in the midst of difficult sadness, anger, fear. which may, if we are caught in those, as we all know, um, we may act in ways that aren't really helpful, that aren't really appropriate, that may, in fact, cause more suffering both for ourselves and others. And so we, as we practice the first three Brahma-viharas, we also practice the fourth, which is the really the wisdom, the more direct wisdom aspect of practice that feeds and informs the first three and helps to keep them in balance. As was mentioned this morning in the instructions, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference, a feeling of indifference. And sometimes that might seem when we don't feel anything or we feel indifferent to a situation or in a situation, it might feel like we're equanimous. But in fact, that's not true. Indifference is actually a state of separation. It's a state of contraction away from whatever, whoever uh, we're around. So equanimity is not about not feeling anything. But it's balance in the midst of what might be even strong feelings. There are um, various other traditions besides the Buddhist tradition that practice equanimity in various ways. There's an amazing description of a practice and a ceremony from the Native American tradition from a book Um, by Frank Waters called the Book of the Hopi. 
I'd like to share a little piece of that with you. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll on the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up on his crossed legs, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. (laughs) Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling all over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one, upon whose body they chose to rest. That's the way snakes show who are good and kind men, with pure hearts. Quite a practice. (laughs) I must admit, not one that I want to try. but I appreciate it. (laughs) And so we, in our way, practice towards the the development of the boundless capacity of our heart. My one of my teachers, Upandita, said um, once in a Dharma talk that um, <clears throat> he said, I've been checking for a long time. Was a monk, has been a monk for many, many, many years since he's been a boy. He said, I've been checking for a long time. And he said, I think everything begins here. And he pointed to his heart. He said, some people think it begins here. And he pointed to his head. But he said, I, I, I've been checking and I, I think it all begins here. And he kind of tapped his heart. And it really was... Um, it really affected me. I really started checking after I heard him say that. And uh, I'm beginning to also um, feel that everything begins here, right in the heart, in the, uh, this expanding energy of the heart. Some years ago, I, um, when I was living in Michigan, I was working with uh, a Native American teacher for some years who used to come to where we lived 
Um, actually, he lived in Colorado, but he'd come a couple of times a year. And he'd do um, sweat lodges and give teachings over days. Sometimes he'd stay on the property of the center <coughs> where we held it, held the uh, teachings and sweats. And sometimes he'd stay at people's homes. And one year I invited him to stay with me. <coughs> I had one son still living at home. We lived in a fairly small log cabin in the woods in Michigan down the road from the ecology center with that sponsored um, these teachings. So the day arrived when Wallace Black Elk was to come to stay at our house. And uh, my son and I were excited and a little nervous. The car drove up, an old jalopy of a car. And um, first Wallace got out. And he's, he's a big man. He's, I think, about six feet four, so big boned and had cowboy boots on and a cowboy hat and braids and jeans and looked even bigger with all of that, you know. Um, And then other people started getting out, more people, more people. It was like the circus, you know, where the clowns keep coming out of the car. There were seven people in that little old jalopy, and we had actually expected only he and his wife. But there were all these people. And my son and I were at home, and I had a friend there to help me cook and a friend of hers. So, is that seven, eight, nine, ten? There were 11 people in the house that, after everybody arrived. And it was quite a small log cabin. <laughs> we wondered where would everybody sleep? How would we feed everybody? It was way more than we had expected. The sweats would happen at about one o'clock in the morning. And Wallace and extended family would usually sleep till about 11 in the morning. Dinner was, the sweats ended about one o'clock in the morning, I should say. They began somewhere around 10.30 or 11 at night. One o'clock in the morning was dinner time. And um, we found that, and they were there for 10 days, we found that people were sleeping all over the house, kind of in nooks and crannies, and it was fine. It didn't feel crowded. We'd go to the sweats at night and come back, and there would be food, um, dishes of food, bowls of food, cooked, some that needed to be cooked, set around in the kitchen or outside the door. And we didn't know who did it because we thought everybody was over with us at the at the teachings. In the late morning after everybody would wake up, people would come to the house. Sometimes there were as many as 20 people to come to listen to Wallace talk. He would sit in the living room and just talk, answer questions, give teachings, but it was often dialogue or lots of stories. 
And um, they smoked a lot of cigarettes, which uh, we didn't have cigarette smoking in our house, but we did then. Um, they also they ate very differently. They ate a lot of meat. It was what they were used to. Um, drank a lot of soda. And all of that was very different than our lifestyle, but um, it was all okay. Uh, and so this went on for 10 days. And the evening uh, before they left, we had a little ceremony in the living room. We cir- made a circle. And it was just my son and I and Wallace and my friend who was helping and her friend and Wallace and extended family. And it was, um, they asked for the ceremony. <clears throat> we didn't make a fire in the middle of the liv- living room, but it was kind of like we had a little bonfire that we were sitting around. We made a little altar, actually. They brought out um, treasures, gifts that they had brought for us and offered us these beautiful treasures um, for um, what we given, taken care of them. And, um, and then Wallace um, gave a talk. He, he, he shared with us. And uh, he spoke about um, generosity, the generosity of the heart. He said that when one gives from the heart freely and openly, one never feels empty or alone or separate. He said that when one gives from the heart openly and freely, there's always a connection and caring in a kind of seamless circle of ease and spaciousness that just keeps circling around. A seamless circle of abundance and love, he said. He said that if one gives openly and freely from the heart one's material possessions, one finds there's enough, there's abundance. If one gives non-material energy, It's this constant circle of giving and receiving, no difference. The next um, day, they all left. My son and I walked them out to the car, and then we came back into the house, just the two of us, and we stood in the middle of the living room, which was the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, uh, kind of all together, 
Uh, And we stood there looking around. And we were amazed at how our house seemed to have shrunk. The, the space had seemed sort of boundlessly expanded during those 10 days with so many people and so much going on. And all of a sudden, it had shrunk back to this little teeny little house. <laughs> we were surprised. In, that, in those 10 days of kind of endless generosity going in all directions. There was this amazing expansion. (laughs) And we kept looking at each other and wondering what happened. It was kind of a mystery. But it was a wonderful teaching, and I, I've obviously never forgotten it. Um, this generosity of the heart, it's our innate human capacity. It's our natural being. And the more we practice it, the more we reap it, so to say, the more we offer it, the more we reap it. And as we practice and as we keep checking, (laughs) I think that we begin to learn um, and we begin to know that the ground of that, of that generosity of the heart uh, is the ground of where freedom begins. The liberation of the heart is the ground of liberation of our whole beingness, so to say. I'd like to um, close the talk with reading, I wish I could sing it, but I, I don't know the melody. Uh, this is the Metta Sutta that was translated by monks from the Amravati Monastery in England. And I'd like to uh, end with this. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward, and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, 
peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and unseen, those living near and far, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world, born again into this world of suffering, is what that essentially means. So let's sit together for just a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.